0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Progress on the Path to Improving Outcomes in the Treatment of Small-Cell Lung Cancer, Making the Most of Current Standard of Care Therapies and Exploring New Promising Research. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WFE860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Thank you for joining us this evening on Progress on the Path to Improving Outcomes in the Treatment of Small Cell Lung Cancer. I'm Taufik Owenikoko, Professor of Medicine from University of Pittsburgh and UPMC Hillman Cancer Center. Joining me tonight are two of my esteemed colleagues. Dr. Carl Gay is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Thoracic and Head and Neck Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'm also joined tonight by Dr. Tiziana Leo, a friend, colleague of many years, an associate professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology, and the Director of Thoracic Medical Oncology at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. What are our goals for this evening? We want to equip by discussing amongst ourselves as well as with all of you in the audience with knowledge and skills needed to make the most of the current standard of care therapies available for small cell lung cancer. We also hope at the end of the night that we would have augmented your awareness of exciting new data on small cell lung cancer biology as relevant to subtyping, as well as many investigational therapies that have shown some promise in small cell lung cancer. Longevity is a partner for this program. We all know that lung cancer is complex, Patient education and engagement is very, very important and much more important than ever. And as we all know about, the theme for this year's ASCO is about partnering with patients. So this is really, really relevant to our discussions tonight. We hope that we are able to educate our patients and provide them access to high-quality resources and support services. This is what longevity does. Our patients would become better informed participants in sharing decision-making process with their care providers and ultimately, this will lead to improved outcomes for people diagnosed with lung cancer of all types. And we start by doing that through this exchange of ideas and interaction. Hopefully, we all contribute to improving how people live with lung cancer diagnosis. Please access the Supplemental Longevity Resource Compendium available in this program under the website address on your screen. Now, let's watch a short video from our partner, Longevity Transforming Lung Cancer.
2: My name is Dr. Upal Basaroy, and I am the Executive Director of Research at Longevity Foundation, a lung cancer patient advocacy group based in the United States and with a global footprint. Thank you again for joining us for this very, very important education session on small cell lung cancer, and thank you, Peelview Oncology, for your partnership on this extremely important educational activity. Now, who is Longevity Foundation? As I mentioned, we are a patient advocacy group and we have two very big goals. Our first goal is to improve outcomes of people diagnosed with lung cancer. And our second goal is improving how people live with lung cancer. And when I say people living with lung cancer, we include not just patients, but also their loved ones who are navigating the disease. At Longevity, everything is precision medicine driven. We firmly believe that precision medicine is the foundation for all diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer, irrespective of the subtype of lung cancer that a patient is diagnosed with. And we have services and resources all the way from pre-diagnosis to diagnosis, treatment and potential progression. And our programs span the entire lung cancer continuum. Now, to get into some of our survivorship and support resources for our community, we have the Lung Cancer Helpline. That's manned from Mondays to Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern and Fridays from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. We have our lifelong support partners and our clinical trial ambassadors. And these two resources are of huge help to patients and their caregivers who are navigating their diagnosis. On the right, you see our clinical trial finder. This is a web-based application for patients or their loved ones to find the clinical trial that is right for them. Now, let's talk a little bit about our resources, very specific to the small cell community, a community that is incredibly underserved and extremely important for longevity foundation. So, let me tell you a little bit about the online resources. First, we have a section very specific to small cell lung cancer within our Lung Cancer 101. Below you'll see, below left, you'll see a set of videos that patients and their loved ones can access to understand more about their diagnosis, about biomarker testing, about histology of different types of lung cancer. On the right, you'll see some live offerings that we have specific for the small cell community, such as Facebook Live, with different key opinion leaders that patients can join, again, to learn about their diagnosis and how to navigate their l- small cell lung cancer. Another very important resource for the community is our Longevity Small Cell Lung Cancer Patient gateway. Now, this is essentially a one-stop shop for a patient diagnosed with, lung ca- with small cell lung cancer or for a caregiver taking care of a patient diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. The gateways are a platform to find specialists that treat small cell lung cancer, clinical trials for small cell lung cancer, and to be part of communities of patients and caregivers, again, from the small cell lung cancer community. Now let's talk a little bit about very specific patient education resources. Again, we have a variety of resources and the URL that you see at the bottom That is a place to download small cell lung cancer specific resources that you or your healthcare team can share with your patients and their loved ones. We have health literate resources that you see on the left side. In the middle, you see a comprehensive booklet talking about small cell lung cancer, how it is different from non-small cell lung cancer and different treatment options. And all of these materials are available in Spanish as well as in English. And lastly, you, as a provider, you can visit this website that's provided on the top to order resources and booklets and handouts for your patient and your healthcare team that you can distribute to your patients and their loved ones. We are here to help you help your patients. Thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thank you to our partner, Longevity. Uh, As we all gathered here at this meeting, we are all making efforts to improve the outcome for our patient, and uh, we all know that when it comes to small cell lung cancer, advances have been very, very few and far between. Uh, This is in part because this is a disease that is tightly associated with the use of tobacco, not to stigmatize the patient, but what that brings is a lot of associated comorbidities that makes patient treatment and management much more challenging. Also, this is a very rapidly growing type of cancer where the clinical cause can be measured in weeks without intervention. So, for a lot of us as care providers and caregivers at times, we are not very tolerant of delaying treatment for patients. The consequence of this is that it becomes very difficult to get a lot of our small cell lung cancer patients onto clinical trials. This is further compounded that of most of the uh, currently available standard of care. Options are easy therapeutic strategies that can be easily administered without having to refer the patient from your local practice location to any tertiary or secondary referral center. And finally, we've had very, very limited understanding of the biology of this disease, in part because we do not have enough tissue to work with. Majority and the vast majority of these patients do not undergo surgical resection of their primary tumor, So we are left with scanty amount of tumor samples to work with, and until very, very recently, we did not have reliable preclinical models that faithfully replicate what this disease means in patients. So ultimate consequence of all these factors is that we have a lot of clinical trials that we've done in this disease that have turned out to be failed clinical trials without achieving the expectations. We've not been able to significantly impact the overall survival outcome for our patient, especially beyond the front front line. And in the second line and beyond, we still rely on very, very limited prospective data uh, in terms of what we know to be effective for patients, and we're then left with a lot of trials that are poorly informed because of limited understanding of the biology. Despite all these challenges, we've made some significant progress in the recent past, and I'm very, very hopeful that by the end of this session, through our interaction amongst the faculty, as well as the audience, and using case illustration to show where the field has been and where the field is headed, that we will all come to an understanding where we are well poised to start making some significant advances in the treatment of this disease. So to take us through this, I'm going to hand this over to Dr. Tiziana Lill, To sort of review for us the state of the science and the new standards of care in the treatment of small cell lung cancer, Tiziana.
3: Thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Let's start with our case. So this is a 65-year-old man with past medical history of hypertension, COPD, hyperlipidemia, as well as a 45-year pack-year smoking history who presented with cough and generalized fatigue for three months, good performance status. Initial workup demonstrated a left upper lobe opacity with a CT chest to follow showing a four centimeter left upper lobe mass with left hyaluron mediastinal adenopathy. The blood work was notable for anemia with a hemoglobin of 8.4 and thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 67,000. He underwent a bronchin biopsy that revealed a diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. Additional staging included a negative brain MRI, and the PET CT did demonstrate multiple hepatic metastasis, extensive bone marrow uptake consistent with skeletal mets. And now he comes to our clinic to discuss further management. Dr. Gay, initial thoughts on how you would approach this patient?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in general, this is a relatively garden variety presentation of a, an extensive stage small cell lung cancer patient. I think there are a few things to note, in particular the cytopenias there that may come into play in terms of how precisely we manage this patient. I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that they're already anemic and thrombocytopenic at baseline, and we're apt to make that worse and may need to make some adjustments there. Uh, but I would say this is this is pretty typical, often extensive stage at, at at the time of diagnosis, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of the time um, we see that. And so I, I think that they will probably follow the standard uh, frontline algorithms that you'll talk about next year.
3: Okay. So let's move on to first-line therapy for small cell lung cancer, and then we'll go back to our case. So the first study to review in PAR-133, this study now, um, standard of care for our patients in the front line with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Investigated here the addition of a PDL-1 inhibitor, a in patients with untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. In this study, 403 patients with good performance status of zero to one were randomized one to one to the combination of a tezolizumab, the PDL-1 inhibitor, with the standard platinum backbone of carboplatinotopicide, followed by a maintenance. And in the control arm, patients received placebo in combination with platinum etoposide. In patients who were treated until progression or loss of clinical benefit, with the co-primary endpoints of overall survival, an investigator assessed progression-free survival. These are the results of the MPAR-133, now with longer follow-up, the median follow-up of 22.9 months. This study met the primary endpoint of overall survival that is shown here, with Further follow up, this overall survival is maintained, demonstrating the benefit of adding a tezolizumab to a backbone of platinum atopicide with a median overall survival of 12.3 months in the Atezo plus chemo versus 10.3 months in the placebo plus chemo with a hazard ratio of 0.76. This is a subset analysis of, um, not a subset of analysis, but a, f- a post hoc analysis of Empower 133, really looking at sites of progression for patients in Empower 133. And I think the interesting here thing to note is that A little over half of the patients actually had progressive disease on this regimen um, on target lesion. And if you recall the study design of empire 133, these patients were not allowed to get thoracic um, chest consolidation, which is something that we used to do prior to empire 133. And a lot of patients with small cell lung cancer do present with bulky mediastinal masses and central masses. So part of this is uh, rationale for actually doing future studies, one ongoing study, the Raptor study investigating consolidation radiation for patients with small cell lung cancer after chemo-IO induction. But we can also see here that, you know, 42% and 49% respectively actually had progressive disease on a new lesion. There weren't really any significant difference in terms of sites of development of new disease across both arms. And then another interesting analysis that was done by Dr. Higgins from Emory was also looking at intracranial progression in POWER-133, and the interesting finding here is that the median time to intracranial progression is delayed in the Atezo plus chemotherapy arm. As you can see here, the median time to intracranial progression is 20.2 months versus 10.5 months. Moving on to our next study is the Caspian study. This also led to the approval of the combination of dervalimab plus EP in extensive stage small cell lung cancer in the front line. Here this study um, had three arms, um, and we'll focus more on the DERVA plus EP, but they also had an arm that included DERVA, which is the pd one inhibitor, in combination with a CTLA-4 inhibitor plus EP. So here we have 805 patients randomized, one to one to one, to DERVA plus TREMI plus EP, followed by DERVA maintenance, DERVA plus EP. EP every three weeks for four cycles, followed by DERVA maintenance, and then the standard of care arm here is EP every three weeks. This one did allow up to six cycles of therapy, and here in the standard of care arm, PCI was optional. The primary endpoint is overall survival. Secondary endpoints include PFS and overall response rate, safety, and patient-reported outcomes. These are now the longest follow-up that we have from these chemoimmunotherapy studies. We now have the three-year overall survival update from the Caspian demonstrating, again, sustained benefit that's durable for a subset of patients at this three-year overall survival update. The median overall survival for DERVA plus CP was 12.9 months versus 10.5 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of 0.71 and a p-value of 0.003. Now with that median follow-up of 39.4 months, you're seeing that tail of the curve, really demonstrating here that there is a subset of patients who can derive prolonged benefit from the addition of a PD-L1 inhibitor. Here, 17.6% in the DERVA plus TP versus 5.8% in the EP arm. This was an interesting um, exploratory analysis of the Caspian study. I think brain mets very relevant to clinical practice. We know that 10 to 20% of our patients actually present with brain mets, and in, an additional probably 30% will develop brain mets during the course of their disease. And here is a study kind of looking at you know outcomes. <laughs> independent of whether patients had brain mets at baseline or not. The Caspian study did allow the inclusion of patients with asymptomatic untreated brain mets, and although this was a small percentage of patients, there were 10.4% of patients with untreated asymptomatic brain mets in the experimental arm and about 10% in the control arm. And to summarize this slide, basically, that in patients... In the Caspian study, with brain mets at baseline or without bra- brain mets at baseline, there was an overall survival advantage with the addition of dervalumab to chemotherapy, really continuing to sort of support the use of this combination in patients in the frontline setting. So here's where we're at now. This is our current standard of care. The combination of atezolizumab plus chemotherapy improves overall survival without significant added toxicities, this led to FDA approval in March of 2019. And then the Caspian data, also leading to FDA approval in March of 2020 with the addition of dervalumab to frontline chemotherapy, also improving survival without significant toxicity. And then just briefly, uh, the Tremolumab arm, which included the CTLA-4 inhibitor, this did not meet statistical significance and had increased toxicity in that arm, so this did not lead to um, approval and is not currently used in the standard of care.
4: So there are other efforts, obviously, to focus on the, the frontline setting in small cell lung cancer, um, not only to expand to other similar agents, but also to see if we can enhance. I mean, it's great to see a tail of a curve. I think that's something that a lot of us thought we might never see for small cell lung cancer, but it is still a relatively modest tail. Um, and so one of those is a, is a drug called Um, This is an anti-PD-1. I think that's a, a key distinction here uh, because the, the other two um, uh, drugs that have been mentioned so far, teslizumab and durvalumab, are anti-PDS. L1s, and there was some uh, sort of undercurrent. Maybe PDL1 targeting was really critical in small cell lung cancer because some of the other anti PD1 studies had had fallen just short. Um, and so this, this study resembles several of the studies that you've seen so far, um, just with a two to one randomization um, between uh, the, the anti PD1 and, and placebo, and then followed by the anti PD1 maintenance. And um, the the outcomes here uh, again f- f- fairly similar to what we've seen in the past. So there's a there is indeed an overall survival benefit um, to the addition of anti-PD1 in this context. Um, an overall a median overall survival of just over 15 months, which is numerically the, the best that we've seen, although not not uh, totally out of proportion. Um, and a hazard ratio of 0.63. Uh, I think the other the other thing that's that's worth mentioning here is that this this population. So this study was run mostly mostly in Asia, um, and uh, the study population was a bit unique. Uh, they saw 20% or more patients that were never smokers. That's something that uh, we don't see nearly as much of in the North American population, where it tends to be 5% or less. Uh, and this is something that's come up that this this came up in a discussion earlier today. In fact, um, in one of the um, in one of the radiation trials in small cells, So this is a recurrent issue that seems to be a distinction between some of the Asian populations. And so this um, this has not led to an approval yet. There's a um, A study ongoing now to enroll patients in in North America and Europe um, to the same uh, regimen to see if we see the same benefit there, but I think it looks, looks very promising. Um, I guess getting, getting away from things that look promising, unfortunately, there's going back to something that was presented last year at ASCO, which is the Skyscraper 2 study. Um, and so this was an effort to, to combine anti-PDL1 in the form of a tezolizumab, um, with an anti-tigit, um, or tiragolumab, uh, in the frontline setting. And so this, this, uh, builds upon the Empower 133 regimen, um, with the addition of the, of the anti-tigit uh, here and so the enrollment criteria um, were very very similar to the original Empower One Thirty Three study, um, with the exception of asymptomatic brain metastases. in in, in this case, um, unfortunately, uh, you know I was, I was joking earlier that I think if, even if you just tried to draw two curves that were identical, I'm not sure you could do a better job than than, than this. So the, the, there was not any clear benefit in either PFS or OS um, to to the addition of anti-tigit. Um, and you know I, I think even in uh, some of the post hoc analyses where they were searching for biomarkers or looking at some of the things that seemed to predict benefit from other immunotherapies they they, they were not able to, to glean anything that might suggest um, and so there's you know certainly um, hindsight is always twenty twenty here and you can you can review and revise this but at this time, um, based on this, this one completed trial, not any clear benefit uh, to adding additional immune checkpoint blockade. Um, and this echoes the, what Dr. Leo mentioned with the, uh, with the anti-CTLA-4 here. So we seem to be getting as much out of this frontline consolidation with the anti-PD-1 or pdl one as with the combination therapies. Um, so that won't be the last last we hear of Tigit. Uh, um, so th- there is the o- ongoing KeyVibe 8 study, um, and so this is a uh, is a phase three study where patients um, newly diagnosed extensive stage patients are are um, randomized to the Empower one thirty three regimen as the as the control regimen or um, a regimen that is a platinum etoposide combination um, with a um, with a drug MK seven six eight four A, which is a co formulation of the anti PD one pembrolizumab. And the anti-Tigit, uh, Vibostilumab. Um, and so this this will hopefully read out in the near future, and we can see if if, if, if perhaps there is a role for Tigit that was just not seen in the earlier skyscraper study. So I think really the uh, you know right right now we seem to have pushed um, anti-PD1, anti-PDL1 as far as we can in an unselected population, uh, but the the, the 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 most obvious ways to enhance that with combination immune checkpoint have have unfortunately fallen short to date. Uh, so let's, let's return to our case. And so I, 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 I'll just briefly resummarize the case because this is just as Dr. Leal read it again. And so we have a, a newly diagnosed extensive stage small cell lung cancer patient, um, including both liver and bone metastases, um, as well as the cytopenias that I, that I, that I mentioned initially. Um, and so I think we can get a little bit more specific here. Uh, Dr. Ounikoko, um, wh- what would you recommend for, for a patient in this setting in, yeah. in your clinic?
1: I thank you both for you know, that detailed insight into what we currently have as standard of care options for our patients. I think when you look at the, at least in the U.S. context, the two approved regimen and you compare the result, there's really not much to choose between the two regimens. And then the question becomes, how do you decide, other than somebody forcing you to use one regimen over another, how do you decide based on patient's unique features on which one to use? And I think as some of these data continue to mature and we get additional post-hoc analysis, actually some of the differences might also narrow or even disappear. So in a patient like this, I think a couple of things to be aware of. This is a patient with good performance status. Not many patients that we see will have... PS of 1, a lot of them will have PS2 and even PS3. And small cell is one of those where we really sort of ignore the performance status in terms of starting patient on treatment. So I wouldn't use performance status to choose between using the use of atezolizumab or duvalumab along with chemotherapy. My own standard approach is if the patient can tolerate chemotherapy, then they can tolerate chemotherapy along with the immunotherapy, unless there's contraindication to the immunotherapy. Then the second question is what should be the optimal combination between the valumab or tizolizumab in this setting. I don't have um, any strict uh, criteria in terms of which agent I use. At times, you use based on what's available within your system. As we know, uh, oftentimes, you have bundled purchased by the system in terms of which uh, anti-PD-1, PDL one will be available. But there are some unique features of the two trials, not the drug, but the way the trials were conducted that might be insightful and helpful when we have to determine which agents to use. In a patient like this with already pre-existing cytopenias, then you have to think about which of the backbone chemotherapy regimen is less likely to make things worse. That's one. Second is, this is a patient where whatever regimen you choose, you want to make sure that you have growth factor support along with the chemotherapy. So we do know that carboplatin is a generally better tolerated chemotherapy than cisplatin, but one advantage that cisplatin has over carboplatin is actually reduce hematologic toxicity. So this would be a situation where I would perhaps be more in favor of the patient getting a cisplatin-based regimen rather than a carboplatin-based regimen because of the pre-existing cytopenia. And if you have to be a stickler for the data, then you ask which regimen do you have if you want to use cisplatin. In that setting, the only thing that we know based on data currently available to us is the use of map along with platinum and uh, etoposide. So, for this patient, for that reason, platinum agent that I will favor will probably be cisplatin, along with etoposide and dovalumab.
4: Yeah, I think that was a, a really thorough um, d- d- discussion of the of the salient features here of the, of this case, which again is a is a fairly um, a fairly standard case that we might see, but I think c- c- there is some nuance to it. Uh, Tishiana, any, anything that you would add here?
3: Yeah, I wanted to add that I think, you know, with this patient, I totally agree I'd go with a cisplatin-based regimen. Um Two points I wanted to make. One would be, you know, in the event of is here, you'd hope that with treating and we know that with small cell, you get rapid response, that you'd actually see improvement in the cytopenias if you get response within the bone marrow and allow the bone marrow to recover. But another strategy that could be potentially used that is, that is FDA-approved is the use of Trilocyclob, which is a cdk 46 inhibitor that is an IV that's been approved in combination with frontline chemoimmunotherapy as a myeloprotective agent. And that would be something that I would consider in this specific case. The other thing I wanted to bring up is the story of Platinum Shortage. So again, you know, if you're having a carboplatin shortage, maybe cisplatin would be available at your institution. Where it gets really hard is, what would we do if we couldn't have access to carboplatin or cisplatin? And I have fortunately not encountered that, but it's definitely very concerning to me, um, as I've seen a lot of colleagues reach out to me and say, what do we
4: do? Yeah. yeah, I've been lying awake at night, worried about that very question. Um, so I w- would love to hear an answer from anybody in the panel. So are, we, are we back to cyclophosphamides and anthracyclines there?
1: Yeah, you know, this is actually a real-world, real-life problem that we all have to prepare for. You know, as this problem starts mushrooming, we actually put our heads together to say, what's the alternative out there? Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that if we are forced to not to, into a situation where we can actually not use a platinum-based chemotherapy and we have to go to CAV, we have no data of immunotherapy along with CAV, uh, which then means not just that we're actually not able to offer the patient the best treatment available. We are actually forced to offer them inferior uh, uh, regimen. I hope it doesn't get to that point. But if we are forced to a situation where we really cannot use platinum-based double chemotherapy for a patient newly diagnosed with small cell, then, you know, the, the alternative to fall back on will be, at least in, in the context of what we're discussing, would have to be a non-platinum-based anthracycline-type uh, regimen.
4: Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't come to that. I, I, think, I think those were, were, were very, nice, very nice additions, Tiziana. I think the, the trilineage milo protection, I think, is a really, a really key thing to consider in a case like this where you're already starting um, a bit behind the eight ball.
1: Well, the other thing that we know is, you know, despite the promise and the benefit that we've seen with chemoimmunotherapy in the front line, the reality of uh, this disease is majority of our patients, the vast majority, would eventually progress. We might delay it for a while, but ultimately what we uh, have to contend with is progression is almost always to be anticipated and to be planned for. So when the patient progresses, what are the options that we have? Uh, for a long time, for many decades, we, when we had really nothing uh, other than going back to retreat the patient, we'll go back and do what we call platinum doublet re-challenge. And that idea came not from robust randomized phase two or three trials, uh, not even from single and prospective trials. A lot of the data that initially set this practice in motion came from single institution retrospective analysis uh, showing that when they had nothing to treat patient and they went back to treat the patient with the same type of regimen, they still saw some responses, and that became like uh, a go-to standard approach in this disease. But as we started to have some promising, even not if they're not groundbreaking options, you started having this dichotomy of people doing platinum rechallenge and some not doing platinum rechallenge. Ultimately, we realized that those who responded to platinum in the frontline setting are the ones that are more likely to respond when you re challenge with platinum. But at the same time, it's not every patient that you can re challenge with platinum doublet. because of deterioration in performance titles, Maybe they did not tolerate the platinum doublet to start with. So it's very, very challenging to go back. But this is one study that actually helped clarify the, uh, the uh, practice for us the study led by Dr. Blaze, uh, comparing Platinum rechallenge in patient with platinum-sensitive disease, and in this study they define platinum sensitivity as chemotherapy-free interval of ninety days or longer. I want you to keep that in mind because you're going to see different trials using different chemotherapy-free interval, and the longer the chemotherapy-free interval, we know the better the prognosis for the patient. Uh, but with that definition, they compare patients being treated with platinum rechallenge using carboplatin and etoposide versus topotecan, which is more or less a standard of care across um, many parts of the world, except for perhaps in Japan, where the uh, preferred option might be Amirubis, over topotecan. And what this study showed was that when you rechallenge patients with platinum doublet, if they've responded before and it had some durable uh, disease control, uh, you are likely to achieve better progression-free survival outcome uh, by using platinum re 4.7 months versus 2.7 months hazard ratio of 0.57, what you don't see there is that that progression-free survival actually does not translate into overall survival. And ultimately, in this disease, whatever we do for a patient that really does not translate into overall survival, we always question it because uh, it does not matter what we do. If we're not improving the outcome overall for a patient, maybe it's not worth it. But I want to emphasize the other thing about this uh, approach is it was compared to topotecan. And when you look at the data, uh, and you will see that in the upcoming slide, the platinum rechallenge subset actually had less toxicity uh, compared to those getting single agent topotecan. Uh, and that is the main reason why a lot of us don't like using topotecan. It's just the associated side, uh, side effect It's enormous for patients who are already frail, who are dealing with other comorbidities. So if you have some options of things to do, rather than topotican, you really want to explore that. But how did we end up with topotican? It's not like we have very, very uh, strong data to support this. Topotican has been tested in so many different ways. IV formulation, oral formulation, daily administration, weekly administration. But the standard approved regimen is usually daily administration, either IV or PO, for five days. And when you compare this to best supportive care, fortunately, uh, using Topotecan was better than best supportive care. Um, but when you compare this to active regimen like CAB, you actually do not see any survival advantage. The only reason why Topotecan became uh, an accepted option in the past was because it was better than the more toxic regimen of CAB. But when you now look at topotecan by itself, as I've shown you in that randomized trial of rechallenge and topotecan, it's actually a little bit more toxic than re-challenging the patient with topotecan. And this is the sort of pattern of toxicity that you see with topotecan. And it doesn't matter whether you give it orally or IV uh, administration. The route of administration actually does not change the pattern of toxicity, except for one thing. The oral administration of topotecan is associated with more diarrhea than IV administration of the drug. Otherwise, the hematologic uh, uh, toxicity pattern and all of the other subset of um, uh, uh, classes of um, um, adverse events were more or less comparable between these two routes of administration. So for those who continue to use topotican. You have to rely on whether the oral or the IV based on patient performance status, pre-existing cytopenias, as well as whether or not the patient is able to tolerate oral administration. The only advantage that I see with oral administration is patient comfort, that you don't have to bring them in every day for five days to uh, um, um, administer topotica intravenously. Lobinectidine is another agent that we now have in our armamentarium, at least in some parts of the world, in the US, parts of Europe, Canada, Australia, and uh, this is now something that we know we can use. But how did we uh, come to a situation where lobinectidine became a standard of care approach for us? Uh, Just to remind people, we really do not have robust randomized phase three data supporting the use of lobinexidine, but when we are limited with options, anything that looks promising, we latch onto it and we want to offer that to our patient. In the interest of time, I'm not going to belabor the mechanism of action, but suffice to say that when you have a drug that has three, four different mechanisms of action, it means, number one, that could be opportunity to partner with other agents, but secondly, it's also that there's opportunity for us to know better exactly how does the drug work. But it has different ways of uh, inducing anti-tumor effect, whether by direct tumor killing or by uh, transcription factor alteration. There's also the implication for tumor-associated macrophage modulation. However it works, we know that when this was tested in the clinical setting, uh, both in patients with resistant disease and those with sensitive disease, labinectidine showed very, very promising data. And this led to accelerated approval by the FDA. As you see here, uh, the median progression-free survival for this agent is around was around 3.5 months. And there was a breakdown between chemotherapy-sensitive and chemotherapy-resistant disease with almost doubling of the median progression-free survival if you have chemotherapy-sensitive disease. So with this, in a... Setting where we really do not have a lot of tolerable and effective option, FDA, in their wisdom, looked at the data and looked at this as promising enough and I uh, uh, granted accelerated approval with the requirement for definitive follow-up uh, trial to confirm this early signal of efficacy. And it's not just because of the progression-free survival, it's also because this actually translated into uh, overall survival signal with median overall survival of 9.3 months, which again was better in patient with Chemosensitive sensitive uh, relapse compared to those with uh, chemo-resistant disease at 11.9 months versus five months. Uh, for patients with relapse disease in the absence of any treatment, median survival, as we all know, is measured in weeks to months. So having an agent that gives you a median overall survival of nine months or even five months in chemo-resistant disease was a strong enough signal to uh, uh, allowed to encourage the FDA to grant this agent accelerated approval. And um, this is the overall duration of response. In those patients who actually responded, uh, you can see that the duration of response is quite impressive at 6.2 months uh, for those with chemosensitive disease and uh, a respectable 4.7-month duration of response even in those with resistant disease. we all done trials in patients with resistant disease If your agent does not work, usually you're going to have a median PFS of around 1.7 months. So getting something like 4.7 months in resistant disease, I think, uh, was quite encouraging. This drug does not come without its own share of toxicity, but a lot of these are manageable, uh, mostly hematologic, which with the use of growth factor support, you actually may be able to support the patient through it. Uh, fatigue is also very noticeable, and it tends to be very common in the first two cycles. And for those patients who are able to tolerate, either the patient gets they adjust to the fatigue, or maybe it sort of uh, uh, gets better. Uh, that is my observation in patients that I've treated with this agent. That you tend to get the patient report about fatigue in the first couple of cycles, and then subsequent cycles, if they stay on treatment, uh, they are better able to tolerate. Uh, I tend to not dose reduce without first trying growth factor support, and that's what I will encourage you all to do because, as I will show you with the Atlantis trial, there seems to be some correlation between the dose at which you treat the patient and the quality of response that you get. So I start all my patients with growth factor support right from the get-go and only consider dose reduction if that does not allow the patient to stay on treatment. So this was to be the confirmatory phase 3 trial, the Atlantis trial that t- took patients with relapsed small cell. Uh, just one prior line of treatment was required, platinum chemotherapy with or without I- immunotherapy. And patients were randomized to receive standard of care agent like topotecan or CAV, depending on the region of the world, where they are and what is acceptable in that region. And then the experimental one was doxorubicin and lobinectidin, but noted that the dose of lobinexidine was 2 milligrams per meter squared. Whereas in the original basket trial as a single agent, the dose that was tested was 3.2 milligrams per meter squared. There was also the opportunity that was in the, uh, later added to this trial where they allowed patients uh, who were randomized to the experimental arm uh, to switch over to single-agent lobinectidine at the standard, original standard dose of 3.2 milligrams per meter squared. We'll see some data as to what the outcome was for those patients. Suffice to say that this was a fairly representative patient population, and unfortunately, um, the trial failed to meet the expected efficacy endpoint of improved PFS and OS when you compared topotican or CAV to lobinectidine plus doxorubicin. There could be so many different factors as to why this was the case, uh, but that is not the point of this presentation tonight, other than to say that this Phase Three Atlantis trial did not provide a confirmatory trial. So lobinectidine currently is still available for use based on the original accelerated approval, but we are going to wait for additional confirmatory trial in the future. But when you look at the 50 patients on the Atlantis trial who were actually treated with the 3.2 milligrams per meter squared, and you see what was the outcome for those patients, Thirty out of those fifty patients actually had objective response, so that is almost a you know forty-fifth as fifty-sixty percent response rate, and the median uh, for those fifty patients who were given three point two milligram per meter square was 20, 20.7 months. So. This tells us that there is a dose-response relationship, and this is why I encourage all of us to start at the highest possible dose, safe dose, with growth factor support, right, and relying on dose reduction as a way to get the patient through uh, the use of this agent. At this year's meeting, we also saw the abstract this morning uh, reporting on the use of lobinexidine in uh, older patients, uh, older than 65 years. You know, people always quibble about what is old, what is elderly. At least their definition in this was 65 years. And uh, based on this work, it at least provided us some assurance that we should not use age to decide who is going to get Lobby or who is not going to get Lobinectidine. It appeared to be very safe in this population of patients. And it's not just Lobinectidine. It's also the combination of Lobby and Doxorubicin as well as topotican and CAV. So like we've been saying, age should not be a reason why we decide to give or not to give therapy to our patient. So to uh, continue with our patient, uh, so the patient was successfully treated. initiated treatment with uh, platinum etoposide and dovalumab completed four cycles of induction chemoimmunotherapy. There was some delay uh, with cycle three and four because of delayed count recovery, which should be anticipated in a patient like this where you're already starting out with uh, cytopenias. So patient successfully transitioned to maintenance the valumab and was on maintenance treatment for seven cycles, so almost seven months uh, chemotherapy-free interval. And then unfortunately, uh, demonstrated multiple new liver uh, disease as well as an MRI surveillance imaging showing sub-centimeter lesions consistent with metastasis, but we know associated vasogenic edema. Patient was totally asymptomatic. This was picked up on surveillance MRI. The patient continues to have acceptable performance status and he w- was still interested in exploring other therapeutic options to address this setback. Uh, so with this um, um, expected outcome for a lot of our patients, I will start with Dr. Gay, what would be your approach to a patient like this who has had quite substantial chemotherapy-free interval and now is progressing on immunotherapy? What's your typical approach?
4: Yeah so I think that I, I think there are two uh, important details here so one is to think about what you're going to do with the the CNS disease um specifically right and and the other is that the patient is also progressing outside of the CNS Uh, and so certainly based on the data that you discussed and based on my own clinical practice and anecdotal experience in a patient like this, that's had, you know, beyond six months, certainly of of a platinum free interval, my inclination is always to retreat with platinum barring a compelling clinical trial that's, that's available for these patients just to, to save as many, um, as many bullets as we can for, for, for downstream, you know, that said, um, with the, um, with the asymptomatic brain metastases, I think it, it, it throws a potential wrench in going directly to that, uh, although I don't think it eliminates it entirely. You know, platinum etoposide is something that is active in, in the CNS. We do see patients, particularly patients that have small brain mets, respond to that. Uh, and I think there's uh, considerable debate that could be taken as to whether or not those need to be addressed in, immediately by um, one form of CNS-directed radiation or another, or if we should give such a patient a chance to respond to systemic therapy alone. Yeah.
1: And uh, Dr. Leal, what's your approach to brain control in this disease? And you know, going back to the data you showed, both from Caspian, which was prospectively tested in terms of intracranial, intracranial activity of chemo plus the valumab, as well as the post hoc analysis of uh, the IMPAR one three three, also showing that uh, there was delay in intracranial progression of disease on patient on atezo. What's your own approach to a patient like this? failing both systemically but also intracranially with multiple lesions?
3: So for patients who have initial presentation with asymptomatic brain mets without edema, um, I think both the Caspian and the Empower 133 um, support starting with systemic therapy with chemo IO up front, as long as you can monitor the brain closely, given the results that we saw in that ex- in both exploratory analysis. So I feel very comfortable with doing that, especially if somebody has, you know, a lot of symptoms, which commonly that's the case, and they have high burden of disease. Now we're in a different scenario, although this patient has, I'm presuming, good organ function otherwise, um, in terms of liver and kidneys and, I'm assuming that ECOG performance status remains preserved, so that's a good sign. But now we're in the platinum pre-treated situation where, yes, we know that with re-challenge you can get a response, but my experience is that the response is not as robust the second time around, even when they're platinum sensitive. And another thing that I really use um, as sort of a marker of whether or not I'll re-challenge is the fact that... This patient already had issues with myelosuppression with cycles three and four and already presented with cytopenias, which would make me hesitant to go for another round of carboplatinatopicide because these patients can get really sick, decline, and die of their disease, and you've only got one shot at trying something that may potentially be of benefit. Um, So in this patient I would actually treat the brain first, Um, I would consult with my radiation oncologist. We are increasingly doing SRS. Eight lesions are a little bit much, but if there are eight little ones, maybe we can get by with doing SRS, monitoring the disease closely to delay, you know, the toxicity of whole brain and get them quickly started on Lurbanectin is what I would use in this patient given that they're platinum sensitive.
1: Dr. Gay, what's your take between SRS and whole
4: brain, especially Maybe if you don't have eight lesions, you have three or four lesions, what Yeah, I I, I agree with what was said, uh, that increasingly I'm seeing our radiation oncologists offer Gamma Knife to these patients, sometimes multiple rounds of Gamma Knife. I know historically whole brain radiation has been the way that we manage small cell. I think there's this uh, presumption that where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And there's likely to be micrometastatic disease. But uh, certainly whole brain radiation therapy, whether it's in the PCI setting or or used down the line therapeutically – it is not without potential uh, potential toxicity. Uh, and so I, I, I'm always supportive of, of SRS when it's offered to, to my patients. And I've had some patients that have completed a, a round of SRS and not had any any CNS uh, recurrence to date. And so it was, certainly it seems like we've pre- preserved yeah. um, some, some CNS some CNS activity in those cases. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think we're sort of reestablishing a new paradigm in terms of managing brain metastasis in this disease I, for one, when it's extensive stage disease, I no longer recommend PCI for my patient as long as there's opportunity for us to closely monitor the brain, and I don't know whether that is your own practice pattern as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, when there is a relapse like this, if a patient has not had PCI, I think now you have options of either old brain or SRS depending on the number of lesions and how symptomatic the patient is. And um, that has worked really well. I think a lot of our patients now with SRS actually do not suffer from all the cognitive decline that you see with re-irradiating the brain after you've done old brain radiation before. Even if you come up later on to use SRS, I think that initial old brain radiation just set up the patient for very, very bad uh, neurological outcome. One thing that we put here is this is actually re-challenging the patient along with Immunotherapy, but this was a patient that started out as limited stage and was treated with concurrent chemo radiation. Um, now, if you're going to rechallenge such a patient after four months, that is not long enough for us to be confident that using platinum rechallenge will have lead to durable benefits. So, I think in a situation like this, the use of lobinexidin will probably be preferable to platinum rechallenge.
4: I think it is a provocative question, though, because you you worry about the tail of the curve that we we showed earlier, right, that you're basically withholding immunotherapy. Yeah. Sometimes I, I can convince myself to, to retreat with platinum, even if I don't think the platinum is going to do all that much benefit, yeah. just to make sure the patient isn't one of those exceptional responders yeah. to immunotherapy. But I, 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 That's that said, I agree with yeah. with, with, with Lerbonectonin as a, as a reasonable choice there.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, you think you bring up a really good point. And if we really go back to the platinum rechallenge study that you showed us, it was 90 days. Yeah. So it wasn't six months. Mm-hmm. Six months is NCCN definition mm-hmm. of platinum sensitivity, and that is not really based on, you know, definitive evidence. Yeah. I think this is consensus-based yeah. evidence. Yeah. So I do agree with you that that patient I would have really struggled with, too, um, just because of when do we incorporate immunotherapy yeah. in a patient who um, is in that setting of recurrence of, yeah. of platinum atopicide. Yeah. yeah. But the only I think,
1: to be, oh, sorry, go ahead.
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, even though NCCN says yeah. six months, you could yeah. make a case, as Dr. Gay was saying, if you really wanted to get immunotherapy in or consider a clinical trial with an immunotherapy combination, <laughs> yeah. which I yeah. think then you wouldn't have to do the platinum rechallenge challenge either after lorbanectin or before lorbanectin, yeah. depending on availability of that clinical trial at your yeah. institution.
1: Yeah. So this is more like a, like a data-free zone uh, because this patient really does not fit the Empower-133 or Caspian uh, population because that is real treatment-naive patient that they took into that trial. Uh, but I think you made very good point. When it's data-free, you have to look at the patient and see what option is going to give the patient the best likelihood of uh, a great outcome. So to move along, uh, Dr. Lil would take us through some other options beyond uh, second-line options for our patients.
3: So this is just I wanted to highlight the NCCN guidelines for subsequent systemic therapy for patients with small cell lung cancer that have performance status of 0 to 2. And I think here... NCCN consensus-based guidelines, they have a preferred regimen as platinum-based doublet. With a chemotherapy free interval of six months or greater. However, I think a lot of us in clinical practice interpret the data differently. Um, and I, I do think that Lurbonectadin here in patients with platinum sensitive disease is a potentially a good option as we were talking about individualizing treatment for our patients and trying to provide the best outcome. And then there is a smattering of other agents beyond topotekin and Lurbonectadin and Platinum Rechallenge. All of these other agents can be used in second line and beyond that are Basically, um, results seen in phase two studies without overall survival benefit. But I think ArenoTCAN is one that we commonly use in second line and beyond. Um, this was actually, there's some data in the phase three setting for TCAN. When we were trying to study denatuximab this was actually the control arm, but did show activity of arenotecan in small cell lung cancer. And then docetaxel or paclitaxel, especially weekly, which is better tolerated, can also be used. I've really personally gotten away from using monotherapy, Neva or Pembro, and really tried to at that point really think about a clinical trial with novel immunotherapy combinations for my patient. Any other thoughts in second line on what you would do?
4: Yeah, I think that one, one thing that I would mention is uh, temozolamide, which is on this list, which is um, certainly um, not an overwhelmingly active drug. I think most single-agent studies show it somewhere in the 15 to 20% range of activity. But if you have a patient that has brain mets, especially a patient with brain mets, that has a good performance status but maybe has had previous radiation to the brain such that radiation, again, is not appetizing, this is a drug you know has good CNS penetration. The CNS response rate for temozolamide um, in small cell is, is, is thirty to forty percent. Um, and so I think there is a is a niche where occasionally using temozolomide, It's a well tolerated agent, it's an oral agent as, as, as well. Yeah.
3: Good point.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing in the int- with what we were talking about before with drug shortage, you know, this is actually one area where we want to think about rechallenge versus no rechallenge, that could also be a reason to move away from rechallenge. If you are not sure that you're going to be able to keep the patient on multiple cycles of platinum based doublet to go with any one of the single agent options.
3: So our patient was initiated on Lerbanectadine and tolerated treatment well, but had progression after four cycles of Lerby with an increasing number of liver mets, mediastinal adenopathy. Patient continued to have good performance status and wanted to discuss additional treatment options.
1: Uh, let me now give this over to Carl to talk to us about some of the evolving research in this space of target as well as promising agent. Carl?
4: Yeah, I think we're we're really at a point here. We have some promising things to describe, some things where we've already seen data read out that looks very encouraging, other things where we feel like we're just on the precipice, both in the biomarker and in the novel therapy space. Increasingly, I think there is a consensus that small cell lung cancer, well, historically treated in a one-size-fits-all fashion, is actually a heterogeneous disease. And this is not heterogeneity at the genomic level, but more the transcriptomic and the proteomic level. And a lot of this centers around uh, differential expression of transcription factors, ASCL1, NeuroD1, PAL2F3 among them. Uh, And there is some retrospective, very preliminary data suggesting that uh, each of these subgroups may do a little bit differently with some standard of care therapies, as well as uh, you may predict they would do differently with some uh, so, some experimental therapies. And so, this is um, one subtyping approach. So, this is a subtyping approach that that, that we developed actually with with support from the Longevity um, uh, uh, Foundation um, in, in 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 the, in the lab. Uh, and so. This was a, an unbiased approach, looking at transcriptional data originally from limited-stage small cell lung cancer patients, where we just asked sort of what the optimal number of subtypes of small cell lung cancer were. Uh, we found, as others had found at that point, ASCL1, one pal 2 POU2F3 defined subtypes, and then we found this fourth subtype, about 15 to 20 percent of the of, of the, the the whole, uh, which didn't didn't have a, a, a glaring signal for any of the three transcription factors, but had very high expression of inflammatory signals immune checkpoints, T cell infiltration, things like that, and we predicted that this, this group might be the one that benefits most from immunotherapy, and indeed, again, with all of the caveats that come with retrospective analyses, we found in the EMPOWER-133 um, uh, trial, if we took the transcriptional data from that trial here on the left, assigned patients to subtypes, looked at their outcomes, this fourth group, which we called I, or inflamed, um, were, were the ones that seemed to Drive a lot of the benefit. Their overall survival went from 10 to 18 months um, with the addition of immunotherapy, whereas some of the more common uh, subtypes, like the ASCL1 subtype, garner only a couple of weeks of, of, of benefit here. So uh, you know, not, not, not prospective data by, by any stretch, but um, certainly provocative data. And indeed, some separate analyses of the Empower-133, looking at long-term survivors, I think also led to some, uh, some, so a, a couple of conclusions. So one is that so this is looking just in with within um, the two the two arms broken down according to these four subtypes, um, and in the darker blue you can see the fraction of patients that were considered long-term survivors here, um, and they saw that that uh, again that you have long-term survivors pretty much across the board. And So it wasn't that long-term survivors were restricted to any one subtype. Um, the 2 of three patients seemed to do pretty poorly overall, but they're rare. Um, but in the inflamed subgroup, there was, particularly in the atezolizumab arm, more than half of those patients were long-term survivors. And so there does seem to be a little bit of a, of a boon to those patients, um, although you're not, you would not capture every patient with long-term benefit here. Some of this long-term benefit could theoretically be from chemo sensitivity as well. Uh, I think one thing that's uh, that that that's, that's worth mentioning is the is, is the role of Yap in small cell lung cancer, um, and uh, it, it feels silly to to describe data from from one of the other panelists here, um, and so I'll, I'll I'll be brief so as not to um, not, not, not to do it a disservice, but I think that. There's a, a consensus that we see Yap expressed in small cell lung cancer models in some small cell lung cancer patients. I think exactly what role it's playing is is, is a source of some controversy. And so I think there's one perspective, which is that Yap one is uh, a transcription factor that defines a, a fourth unique subtype. Um, and and I think there's there's certainly data to support that, including the data that, that that's shown here from 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 Tofiq's group. Um, in, in, our, in our own work, we've we've found that if we look in treatment-naive small-cell lung cancer, we don't see that much YAP um, if we have our pathologists re-review cases, make sure they're pure small-cell lung cancer. That said, in these it, this is by IHC, we do see a fair amount of YAP in large-cell neuroendocrine, which is sometimes mixed with small-cell. In combined histology tumors, we see a lot of YAP1. And in relapse small-cell, we see a fair amount of YAP1. And so I think there is some nuance to the role of, of YAP here, um, and it, it, it may turn out to be not such a simple story, um, there does seem to be an association, as as Tofiq's group has shown, with an inflamed signature with, with with YAP. But it's not as simple as just saying that the inflamed group and the YAP group are equivalent to one another. I think they're defined slightly differently. Um, and I think you could have success pursuing either of those routes, potentially as a way of defining a group that might be sensitive to immunotherapy. Um, and certainly, Targeting targeting YAP or YAP as a biomarker down the line, the YAP T inhibitors I think is, a, is, is 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 something worth considering. Uh, there have been uh, efforts to look both ways at at subtypes. Um, so, for example, in the Caspian data, um, this certainly doesn't doesn't offer much to distinguish between the YAP and the inflamed subgroups. And so, here in their darvamab plus um, EP arms, they saw. Whether they defined it as the ANPY with YAP or ANPI with inflamed, roughly the same um, overall survival benefit for the Y and the I group. Um, you know, about 17 months, similar to what we saw in the retrospective analysis of Empower. And again, it didn't seem to portend a better outcome in the in the um, EP group. And so, this is not a prognostic marker in either case, but seems to be more of a predictive marker. Uh, you can identify some of the same thing with the T-cell inflamed signature, and so this is something that's been derived in other solid tumors. Those of you that attended Dr. Rudin's talk yesterday um, in, 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 in the big hall saw that he he applied this also to... Um, uh, to some of the data with PEMBRO in small cell lung cancer, and there found it seemed to be more of a prognostic marker than predictive. Here in the Caspian retrospective analysis, very small numbers, but looked more predictive than prognostic for benefit with immunotherapy. So clearly there is a subgroup of small cell lung cancer that is immunotherapy sensitive. There are some features that I think the entire community agrees that they, they, they that they feature you know, T-cell inflammation, inflammation um, interferon signatures. I think exactly how we identify those in a, in a way that's rapid and reliable enough to prospectively enroll patients into a clinical trial is a really burning question in the field right now. Um, and this is just some some, uh, some more recent data really honing in on, you know, is is any inflama- inflammatory signature good enough to predict outcomes? And so what they find, um, and I, I won't go into all of the detail here, but they find that Some of the tumors will appear appear inflamed if you're looking at sort of more generic inflamed signatures, but some of those seemingly inflamed tumors, that are, particularly the ones that are neuroendocrine low, tend to have a higher expression of tumor-associated macrophages and a lower signature for T-effector cells, Um, and those tumors seem to do worse. And so it's really that ratio of T-cells to macrophages that they show is really important for identifying the the truly inflamed uh, tumors that are likely to benefit from immunotherapy. This is undoubtedly something that will continue to evolve. I think we have to, we, and this—I this, think Dr. Dalati said this this morning in the in the in the poster abstract review session. We have to get away from doing one size fits all trials, but we also need to need to have biomarkers that are ready for prime time. Uh, we can't have four different inflammatory signatures for, for small cell lung cancer and run four concurrent trials. We'll just never reach consensus that way. I think the notion that we need to do more to inflame some of the uninflamed tumors um, is, is one again that, that, that everyone that's working translationally in small cell agrees upon. And there are a number of ways, and you'll hear some of them later in, in the in the bispecific and CAR discussion. Um, and so this is this is one example. This is a a, a trial, a phase two trial, that's try, uh, combining EP. Nivolumab, so an anti-PD1, with an antibody that's a that that targets a fucosylated um, ganglioside GM1. So the notion here is that you can bring some non-T cell mediated anti-tumor effect to the microenvironment. Right? T cells are not effective killers of small cell lung cancer. They're often not present in the tumor microenvironment. There are a lot of mechanisms there to suppress them. And so if you can get if you can engage the innate immune system, then macrophages, uh, NK cells, etc. To, to act as anti-tumor um, uh, effectors, you might be able to to extend the immunotherapy benefit away from just that 15 to 20 percent population that we consistently see in the tail of the curve. Uh, there are also strategies, so there's there's data suggesting that uh, combining DNA damaging agents can, Enhance the infl- inflammation of a, of a tumor microenvironment, so PARP inhibitors, which have a long history of of, of study in, in small cell lung cancer, uh, have come to be associated and I'll, I'll I'll show a little bit more of this later um, with a biomarker called schleffen eleven so schleffen eleven positive tumors seem to be a bit more susceptible to PARP inhibition as well as another a number of other DNA damaging agents and so in a trial presented just yesterday. Um, by, by dr. Karim. Um, this was SWOG 1929, which was a maintenance study for small cell lung cancer So these patients all received four cycles of platinum atoposide and a tezo Well, I guess they had to receive a minimum of three cycles. They were allowed to receive up to four cycles The first cycle was optional uh, And at some point during their induction therapy had their archival tissue or new tissue if that's all they had uh, assessed for schluffin 11 if they were positive They were eligible for this study and then randomized to either continue a tezolizumab Maintenance um, as per the standard of care, or to get a tesalizumab maintenance plus the PARP inhibitor talizoparib. And so the, um, this is an early readout. Um, there, there, there are still cer- certainly patients ongoing here, and so it'll be interesting to see how this data evolves. The primary endpoint for this trial was PFS, and indeed it did meet its PFS endpoint, um, about 4.2 months of PFS. Now, this is PFS in the maintenance setting, right? This is once they start maintenance therapy, um, versus 2.8 months just on the immunotherapy alone, which is typical of what, what we've seen in other, um, uh, other immunotherapy-only maintenance settings. At this point, OS, although there's a a numerical benefit in OS, 9.4 to 8.5 months for the combination, that is not statistically significant. That's, that's where I think it will be interesting to see how it, how it plays out over time, to see if there's an OS benefit. Again, this was just Schleffen positivity, and so there may be a dosage effect to Schleffen 11 as well, and that's something that we're reviewing right now. You can see if you look at things like response rate, you don't really see any difference between the arms. And this this is something that's been shown, you know, in, in, in the frontline studies for small cell as well, in Power133 Caspian, you're not getting additional responders necessarily with the addition of immunotherapy, but you're getting some tail um, with with immunotherapy. Um, and so this is, uh, again, how much more response is there, is, is there to be left in the maintenance setting, I think, is also a matter of debate. Certainly combining other things with immunotherapies, either to get an additive or a combinatorial effect is of, of great interest. So one of those is lurbinectidine, which you've heard a lot about. Uh, the, the dose of lurbinectidine in the Looper study illustrated here will make Tofik upset because uh, it, it is just 2.4 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, but this is in combination with, um, with, with pembrolizumab. The notion here being that lurbinectidine may act as a DNA damaging agent. You also have tumors that may be susceptible to lurbinectidine or immunotherapy, and so you may capture a greater piece of the pie. Uh, it's be, again, I think a, a number of immunotherapy com- Combinations, Not necessarily with other immunotherapies for small cell, which we've seen have not been particularly successful, but perhaps with other cytotoxic agents Um, And so in the in the in the in the the initial results from the looper study You do see some patients that are having having response here objective response rate of about 30% now that resembles in the relapse setting what we see generally with lerbinectidine alone um, but I think here it would be more about the durability of these responses than, than actually the initial responses as we've seen over and over with immunotherapy um and then just to get back to to i think this has already been mentioned the confirmatory phase three lagoon study um that's ongoing to see um where 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 we land with lurbanectin as well as other lurbanectin combination studies um like the Emforte study which is combined with a tezolizumab in the maintenance setting um and a number of other things that are looking in the maintenance setting with, with cytotoxic agents uh, a lot of efforts around expanding the role from immunotherapy and combining it with radiation in particular um, and so both in the extensive stage setting in the NRG LU007 so um, as Tiziana mentioned earlier, a lot of these patients in these studies and um, these frontline chemoimmunotherapy studies are having on-target progression. You might be able to control that if you allow some consolidative radiation, and so hopefully this will answer that question. And then in limited stage, I think it remains an open question as to whether or not immunotherapy offers the same benefit. We should get readouts on those very soon in some of the studies that are listed there. Um, finally, I'll just quickly mention PARP inhibitors, which we've already talked about a bit. So. Uh, this is a, one example of a study of PARP inhibi- inhibition combined with temozolamide. There have been several studies like this now that have consistently shown an re- overall response rate in sort of the 35 to 40% range. So it's certainly an active therapy in the relapse setting. Uh, durability s- seems to be the issue, as is so often the case. Uh, I think we need to do better with biomarkers for PARP inhibitors for everything. Um, Schleffen 11, the biomarker you've already heard about, obviously, is, is, is a promising one, um, but exactly where you where you cut the threshold there i think is important some of the subtypes seem to be more responsive to uh, parp inhibitors than others um, and then s- small cell lung cancer is not classically thought of as a, as a germline mutation associated tumor um, uh, but but they do d- these tumors do exhibit some ddr deficiency um, in, in in the somatic genome um, uh, within the tumor and occasionally within the germline and you may see some sensitivity there uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll segue a bit from, 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 from those studies into some of, the, so, so some of the immune-engaging agents here. And so I think Dr. owoni Koko is going to take us through the first part of this.
1: Yeah, thanks, Carl. Um, we'll go through this. I think uh, at this meeting we've heard about uh, a few agents using the biospecific T cell engaging antibody platform. And um, I think this is a very, very promising class of agent. Uh, you know, in the interest of time, not to belabor the point, uh, the biospecific T-cell engaging platform basically wants to rely on what we now know of the tumor biology that has some surface-expressed targets that we can go after, as well as ways to uh, attract the immune cells into the tumor microenvironment. And by having bi-specific antibodies that can recognize the tumor cells as well as immune cells, then you are able to bring these two into close proximity leading to T cell activation, tumor cell destruction, and then you have amplification of that loop and eventually anti-tumor efficacy. So the Delphi 300 study looking at AMG 757 or telatoma in small cell lung cancer seems to be the uh, best developed in this class at this point. Not an approved agent, still investigational but revealed some very, very intriguing uh, efficacy signal with overall response rate of about 23% in a heavily pretreated population of patients, some of them having had four, five, six lines of treatment before they went on trial. Much more promising is what you see in terms of the duration of response. Those patients that responded, you know, duration of response median was 13 months, and that translated also into survival advantage with median overall survival of 13.2 months. Acceptable toxicity profile with this agent, we're always worried about cytokine release syndrome. A majority of patients experience some toxicity and some degree of cytokine release syndrome, but mostly grade 1, easily managed and reversible. And this only led to treatment discontinuation in a small minority of patients, about 4% of them. <clears throat> and as you can see in the latest uh, uh, data cut from this study, Many of these patients treated at different doses starting from the second dose level uh, continue to show ongoing benefit from this regimen. The Delphi-301 study is now moving this forward. Uh, and in the spirit of Project Optimus, trying to define what the optimum uh, dose for this agent would be. And I think that is already now defined as 10 milligrams flat dose going forward as the target dose. Uh, this is now being moved forward into randomized uh, trial both in the relapse setting as well as in the earlier stages of the, di- of the disease. Uh, there's also effort, I believe, uh, by Amgen uh, to explore whether or not this could also be uh, incorporated into other settings of small cell lung cancer. Uh, we're not going to talk about the BI compound, which was presented at this meeting, but suffice to say that the data presented sort of mirrors what you see with uh, tolatimab. So I think this is a very, very uh, promising Strategy that we're going to uh, hear more from going forward. And this is just a list of all the other, some of the other agents currently in development, both as single agent, like tel- telatomab, or combination of telatomab with chemoimmunotherapy in the front line. The Roche antibody is a tri specific antibody that not only targets CD3, but also targets uh, CD47. And then there is effort with CAR-T strategy, the cell, uh, cell therapy approach, uh, which was actually uh, spearheaded by Dr. Gay and Dr. Lauren Bias at MD Anderson. Uh, unfortunately, this strategy, despite the initial signal that was seen, uh, I don't think is likely to move forward. But uh, this was a dose escalation trial looking at different uh, doses of the anti-DD3 uh, CAR-T. Uh, where they were able to actually see signal of um, efficacy in some patients, as you can see there uh, in the arrow showing patients with uh, pericardial uh, adenopathy that responded, as well as liver lesion that responded to cell therapy. Uh, there are other CARTIs constructs, both targeting DLL3, CD56, and other uh, unique targeting small cell that are being uh, explored in this setting, and I'm very hopeful that... As some of these eventually might translate into clinical benefit for our patients. Uh, the other class of agents that are being actively investigated are the antidrug conjugate, and Dr. Lil will take us through uh, that class of agent and then bring us home.
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of excitement around targeting different surface uh, proteins or expression of markers that are highly expressed in small cell, and I think the antibody drug conjugates really come out as a really exciting new treatment modality for patients with small cell lung cancer. A lot of the studies are still early in development. However, we are seeing some move along in patients with small cell lung cancer. And looking to the left column, you're seeing the targets. DLL3 was one um, that we explored initially. However, the rovat um story unfortunately did not move forward given toxicities, but the ADCs that have been newly developed have really um, learned from the prior issues with toxicities and have really developed agents that are much superior in terms of the t- technology of this th- drug development. The trope 2 is a really interesting target. We have two agents that are being developed, both in non-small cell and small cell. So in in the slide, you can see here SASE, which is also already approved in breast cancer, has been moving forward in small cell lung cancer. Small trial with 50 patients, but response rate of 14%. Importantly, a duration of response of 5.7 months. And then the TOPA-1 inhibitor uh, payload with dado It's also moving forward in small cell lung cancer. still early, also in development with the pantropion one. And um, we're currently still exploring the activity of DatoDXD dxd in small cell lung cancer. Other important targets, B7H3, which we'll talk about in the next slide, Se sez 6 Ccam5, um, looking at here expression of Ccam5 in small cell lung cancer with TUSA, and then another B7HT, B7H3, looking at BCL2XL inhibitor, um, also in development. So looking at this agent DS7300 in small cell lung cancer, here what we're seeing this is in. Um, Uh, anti-b7h3 monoclonal antibody with a topo one inhibitor payload and what we're seeing here is a payload with high potency and a stable linker it does have bystander anti-tumor effect and in initial studies, what we're seeing is some promising activity here of the agent in small cell lung cancer. Um, looking at the toxicities, certainly the, the toxicities with 16 Mg per kilograms um, was prohibitive, so the part two expansion is moving forward with 12 milligrams per kilogram. Here we're seeing response rates in 19 patients of 53 percent, which is very promising in this early phase study. And then again, trope 2 overexpression in lung cancer um, in high-grade neuroendocrine tumors, 18%. This is uh, identified VIHC, again, a, a novel sort of way of biomarker testing that we're going to have to figure out, especially in small cell where we have issues with obtaining tissue. But nonetheless, we've also seen the prognostic significance of trope 2 in small cell lung cancer, making this an interesting target. And again, the SASE, uh, is the one that's most advanced in development in small cell lung cancer. The cohort here with 18 um, with 62 patients, 18% response rate, median duration response of 5.7 months, and an OS of 7.1 months and of heavily pretreated population, making this, again, a very promising strategy. And then we're also hoping to see DATO-DXD in the Pantropin-01 trial. So, again, here um, with SASE, some of the responses here were actually fast time to response. Two months Two responses were still ongoing, um, and so showing the durability of the response here. So, again, I think more to come in these early phase studies, but certainly very interesting and excited to hear more about these ADCs and small cell lung cancer.
1: We will move on now to the Q&A. If there are questions from the audience, we are happy to take, and I will also take a few questions from the online participants. So, uh, do we have a roving microphone for anyone that wants to ask questions directly? Otherwise, two quick questions for both of you. Um, So, Tiziana, there is one question from the uh, online participants. Is there a role for liver-directed therapies in small cell? And when will you use it if you want to consider that?
3: I think that there could be for palliative pers- purposes. I don't think as a therapeutic strategy it is promising enough as a standard of care approach, but we have a phase uh, 1B trial at Emory that's led by Dr. Higgins and myself, actually exploring the safety and efficacy of combining radiation with lorbanectadine. And in that trial, we do allow radiation to the liver. Um, So perhaps we'll get a little bit more information from that. It's a small number of patients, but very interesting. And so far, we're doing well. Um, But I wouldn't use radiation as sort of my go-to strategy for a patient with small cell lung cancer. Um, Would really favor optimal systemic therapy as the next strategy for somebody with liver disease.
1: And Carl, there is a question. Will you ever check NGS in patient with small cell, and can it be useful, and when?
4: Yeah, so I, I, I do, but not always. And so usually it's when it... There's something that seems off about the case. If I have a young patient, if I have a never smoker, um, if I have a patient that has a history of multiple other malignancies, where I may su- suspect something like a Braca syndrome because we do see those on occasion in small cell, uh, and so I, it's certainly not something I do always because I'm worried about insurance reimbursement for the patients for this because it's not a standard of care. But I do, I, I do, if something doesn't feel right.
1: Good. And the last one I would take that, which is when do we expect data from? I.O. in limited stage disease. So there are several ongoing or completed trials. LU005 tested combined chemo radiation and I.O. followed by chemo followed by immunotherapy. Uh, that study is fully enrolled. We are waiting for results to be out. Adriatic trial, we all know, also tested dovalumab uh, or tremi compared to placebo as consolidation following chemo radiation in limited stage, and then there is the key link trial that's also exploring PARP inhibitors as well as IO consolidation. Uh, that is still ongoing in terms of accrual. Um, very, very hopeful that all of these studies will read out in the next 12 to 24 months and we know exactly what role IO is going to play in the limited stage setting. Um, any other questions? Yes? Oh, there is, sorry, thanks.
2: Going into the future with all the potential treatment options that are coming uh, out with the antibody drug conjugate and CAR T-cell therapy, so are these uh, drugs studied in the trial setting, in an inpatient setting, or uh, my question comes to whether these can be, when you see them coming out, are these going to be able to be used in a community setting, given as outpatient and having?
1: Yeah, we've all had experiences, so I will let my colleagues maybe take that on.
3: Yeah, right now um, we're still we're still optimizing that in clinical trials. Um, the tarlatamab experience still requires inpatient observation, given the CRS risk. Most of the times it's grade one and two, but it is a little scary for the patient, and it needs to for now be managed inpatient. But there is a lot of ongoing evaluations in the clinical trial setting in order to make it more feasible in the outpatient. Either shorter hospital stays or the ability to completely not, you know, hospitalize patients—that would be optimal.
4: Yeah. And you asked about antibody drug conjugates; those are generally given as a, as an outpatient, so it's really an issue with the bispecifics and potentially the the CARs if we get to that point. But as Tiziana mentioned, there there are essentially all of those trials now are attempting to to see how far you can push the envelope in the outpatient setting. Uh, you know, I think it then the issue will become how long your infusion center is open, right? Can you monitor a patient for 12 hours in the infusion center in the post-infusion setting? That may be more difficult, actually, than simply admitting a patient to a hospital in certain settings. Thank you all for joining us,
1: have a good evening.
0: Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Longevity Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WFE860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.